0: Thank you, Ben. Uh, So I heard on the news that uh, starting this July 4th, they're going to start the countdown to the country's 250th anniversary uh, or birthday. And I thought, well, that's great, because that also means it's the countdown to my 50th birthday. Uh, I was born in 1976. (laughs) It feels like 1776 sometimes. Yeah, you've got the coin. Uh, So, yeah, so I get to, you know, the country gets to remind me, uh, you know, often over the next two and a half years. I'm about to turn 50. But, uh, you know, our country has had a a great history. Of course, we've had our faults and our failings, uh, but this country was founded on principles and ideals and truths centered in the Word of God. Uh, Whether you want to say that we have ever been a Christian nation or not, can a, a nation be Christian unless all the people in it are Christian? But our country certainly has had a Christian foundation and has valued uh, the Judeo-Christian ethics and, uh, and and virtues. And with each passing day, it feels like that our country strays further and further away from that history and those ideals. And uh, nothing, I think, illustrates that any better than this past month, uh, Pride Month. Uh, and it's especially uh, prominent in the display of pride flags in federal buildings and institutions across our country, often to the exclusion of the United States flag. It's been absolutely shameful. And the so-called family-friendly pride parades that put deviancy and graphic behavior in front of children, they claim that those things are family-friendly. Parental rights, medical science are being denied for the sake of gender ideology and the idea that you can be born in the wrong body. Christian ethics and values are rapidly being replaced with postmodern philosophies and pagan beliefs. And what we're going to look at today in Jude 5 through 7, he's going to highlight three sins unbelief, rebellion, and immorality. And I think those are just increasingly descriptive of Western civilization. You don't have to look far to see the evidence that our culture has turned its back on the Word of God rejected His standards, and routinely mock those who believe in them and live by them. Now, as we think this morning about how God views our culture, how He views the sin that's prevalent in our society and the judgment that will come, we can't just look at the world out there and shake our heads. We also have to look within ourselves. We need to examine ourselves, our families, and our church How much of the culture's lies have we bought into? The messaging is so prevalent. It affects us. How much of those lies have we bought into? How much do we talk and look like the lost world around us? Are we hiding our light under the bushel? Have we lost our saltiness? We need to ask ourselves these questions because God, I believe, will hold us as Christians accountable. He is calling us to repent, to rise up, and to contend for the faith delivered to the saints once for all. And that's the theme of the book of Jude. That is what He is calling us to do. And in Jude 5-7, through He gives us a very helpful and needed reminder about the seriousness of sin and the certainty of God's judgment. So this is not a a light, fluffy, happy sermon, y'all. We're going to talk about the seriousness of sin and the certainty of God's judgment. Let's look together at Jude, verses 5 through 7. Now, I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for Your Word. It is true. And it is eternally relevant. And Father, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would peel back uh, the, the pride and the ego and the resistance that we may have to what Your Word has to say to us. God, may we listen with soft and attentive hearts. And may we hear the message that You are speaking to each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jude, in these three verses, uses three Old Testament examples to really kind of go back to verse 4. Look back with me at verse 4 where he said, for some people who were designated for this judgment long ago. Now he's talking about the current false teachers that are plaguing the churches in his day, right? He talks about those who have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ our only Master and Lord. But he talks about them being... Basically, predestined for judgment. What's he talking about? Well, that's what he is unpacking in verses 5-7. through What he is saying is that these people that are proclaiming falsehood and leading Christians astray today, they are going to suffer the same judgment that these ancients experienced in these three examples. And what Jude tells us about these sins and the certainty of God's judgment, he says right here in verse 5, it's nothing new. Right? What's he say? He says, I want to remind you of something you've already come to know. So this should not be shocking. This should not come as any surprise to us. This is part of the faith that was delivered to us once and for all. Yes, the gospel, the faith that was delivered to us is good news, right? The gospel is good news. That God is love, that God is long-suffering and patient, God is compassionate and gracious and abounds in mercy, and He longs to forgive. But if there's good news, there's also bad news. And that is also part of the faith that's been delivered to us. And the bad news is that while God is holy and just, we are sinners. And the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God in a literal place called hell. To experience the good news of salvation then, we have to acknowledge our sin. We have to acknowledge our need for a Savior, repent of those sins, and turn in faith and trust to Jesus Christ. So this is should be no surprise, should not be shocking to us. But in our human pride and sinfulness, we tend to forget God's truth and we neglect to learn from the lessons of the past. And so we need to be reminded. So let's allow Jude to remind us today just how serious God takes sin and just how certain His judgment is on those who seek to deceive God's people, distort God's grace, and deny God's Son. And the first example that he gives us in verse 5 is Israel. And Israel teaches us that refusing God's Savior leads to destruction. Now, it's interesting, if you look at these three examples, this story about Israel should come last chronologically, but Jude starts with it. Why? I think it's because of who the nation of Israel was. They were God's chosen people. They weren't just any nation. Listen to what God said to them from Mount Sinai not long after He delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He says in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, Now, if you will carefully listen to Me and keep My covenant, you will be My own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is Mine, you will be My kingdom of priests and My holy nation. God chose Israel out of His grace, to be the nation through whom the Messiah would come, that Jesus would be born to bring salvation to all the world. And time and again, God demonstrates His love for Israel, His commitment, His faithfulness to Israel, His power and sovereignty, His goodness and grace. If you think about the ten plagues that God used to punish Egypt and liberate Israel, the Passover miracle, the parting of the Red Sea, the giving of the Ten Commandments to them on Mount Sinai, the pillar of cloud that led them by day and fire by night, the tabernacle and sacrificial system that made it possible for a holy God to dwell in their midst. Think about the miraculous provisions of food and water and how God gave them victory over more powerful enemies time and again. Israel had an amazing past. A marvelous legacy. They had witnessed more miracles from God than any other group in all of history. Yet they still failed to trust God to meet their daily needs. How many times did they want to kick Moses to the curb and find a new leader to take them back to Egypt? How often they grumble and complain at God and turn to idols? And then when God finally brings them safely to the edge of the land that He promised them, they refuse to go in. And that's the incident that Jude is talking about. That's the unbelief here in verse 5. That He saved the people out of Egypt, but not all of them wanted to be saved. And we see that in Numbers 13 and 14. You may remember the story. The twelve spies, one from each tribe, go into the promised land to scout it out. And when they come back, they report, oh, it is a great land. It's a glorious land. Oh, it's full of abundance, but it's also full of some cities with really high walls and even taller warriors. We can't do it. We can't defeat them. We can't take this land. Ten of the twelve spies started to sow these seeds of doubt and said, if we go in there, we'll be crushed under their boots like grasshoppers under the feet of giants. We can't do it. Only the minority report of Joshua and Caleb held up the hope that if they trusted in the Lord, he would see them through. So listen to what it says in Numbers 14, verses 1-9. through It says, then the whole community... Broken to loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and our children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly of the Israelite community. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who scouted out the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite community, the land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But the people didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb. They refused to trust the Lord. And the consequence, the judgment of God for that refusal to believe was destruction. It didn't happen all at once. It happened slowly over a period of 40 years. Listen to what God's judgment was upon the people in verses 22 and 23. None of the men who have seen my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tested me these ten times and did not obey me, none of them will ever see the land I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who have despised me will see it. So here you have a nation that the Lord saved and delivered from literal slavery, but obviously not everyone in that country was saved from spiritual slavery. God got all the Israelites out of Egypt, but He didn't get all of Egypt out of the Israelites. That's a different story. Moses, the prophets, and even Paul, they put it this way. They say, just because you're circumcised in the flesh doesn't mean that you're circumcised in your heart. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 2. He said, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So what Jude is doing is he's comparing these false teachers in the churches to these Israelites who were not really true Israelites. Oh, they were among the people of God, but they were not the people of God. They claimed to be the called, loved, and kept, but they were deceived and they were deceivers. Being in the nation of Israel didn't mean that you were beyond destruction or that your heart belonged to the Lord. And listen, being in the church doesn't mean that you're saved. Your name can be on a church roll. You can have gone your whole life. You could even have gotten wet in that baptistry, and that does not mean you had a genuine salvation experience. Which is why Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. And we would all do well to examine ourselves. Do we bear the fruits of righteousness? Have we been transformed? Have we been changed by the Holy Spirit of God in our lives? Jesus Himself said, it's not enough just to say, Lord, Lord. That doesn't mean you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, if you love Me, you'll obey Me. If you trust Jesus, you want to do what Jesus says. Faith is about more than just the intellectual consent to ideas about God. Faith is a commitment and trust in God. You put your trust in Him. Have you done that this morning? Have you ever genuinely put your trust in Jesus Christ? Do you know that you are the called and loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ? If you have any doubt about where you stand in your relationship with Jesus, I hope that you'll settle that today. Because to refuse God's Savior will end in eternal destruction. The second illustration... Uh, is that rebelling against God's sovereignty ends in judgment. And here the example is fallen angels. Rebelling against God's sovereignty ends in judgment. Now this Jude verse 6 is truly a head-scratcher. This is one of the most debated and difficult verses in the Bible to interpret. Who is Jude talking about? whoever it is, it's the same person that Peter is writing about in 2 Peter 2, 4 where he says God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. Now, there are two different views of this that that are well argued by both sides. One is that Jude is simply referring to those angels who with Satan rebelled against God's sovereignty and were cast out of heaven. Okay, that that's what he's talking about. There are others who say that it's the account in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, uh, where it talks about the sons of God coming down to the daughters of men and bearing and them bearing their children. And these Nephilim, these mighty warriors, are part of the reason why God destroys the world with the flood. Those four verses are also kind of head-scratcher verses. They're kind of strange and hard to uh, understand. Uh, So we're not going to dig into all of that, but I will say that it seems to be that the Genesis 6, 1 through 4 was uh, what Jude says here was sort of the common understanding among Jewish people at the time that he wrote this. So maybe what he was writing about, we don't know. What we do know is that his original audience, he expected them to understand this. So we may not understand it 2,000 years and cultures away, but uh, he knew that they understood what he was talking about. And while the specific interpretation may be open, what is clear and plain in the text is the application. And that's what we care about, is what does this mean for us? These fallen angels, whatever they did, which whatever was the cause for their being uh, confined in these chains for judgment, they rejected God's plan for them, that much is clear. They believed there was something better for them than what God had for them. Right, look at what it says in verse six. The angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. That could be descriptive of Satan and his demons rebelling against God, or these, you know, this episode in Genesis six, one through four. Either way, we're talking about angels rejecting God's authority refusing their positions and responsibilities and rebelling against God's established spheres. That's what they've done. Is that not what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden? They followed Satan's lead and questioned God's goodness and trustworthiness. They thought they knew better than God how to live and they rejected His authority over their lives. It's the same thing. And Jude says that these angels rejected God's sovereignty not once but twice. First, they did not keep their own position. Secondly, they abandoned their proper dwelling. So neither their place or their position given them by God was good enough for them. And they rejected them. They wanted more prominent positions of power. They wanted better places of activity. And Jude's comparison with the false teacher's with these angels is applicable for us today. For those who, through self-deception, rationalize their own thirst for power and prestige and popularity, they have an inflated sense of self-worth, and they refuse to trust God's providential plan and His sovereign authority. And that's happening today. Now Jude is writing against these false teachers. Right, they're heretics. They're 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 promoting some kind of heresy, we're not exactly sure, in these churches. Well, throughout Christian history, there have been heresies that we've had to contend with. Huge doctrinal debates. It's, it's you know split denominations. It's split the Christendom into Catholic and Protestant, right? I mean, there were councils and creeds that were written to talk about the, the, the humanity and deity of Jesus. The means of salvation the role of the Holy Spirit, the nature and function of the church, the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Well, do you know which doctrine is is that which we contend with the most today with heresy? It's the doctrine of mankind. Specifically, how God created us male and female and His design and meaning for sex and marriage and the sanctity of human life. That is what we're contending with today above and beyond all these other doctrines. And people do all sorts of logical gymnastics. They rip Scripture out of context to rationalize their rejection of God's authority. So like Adam and Eve, like the fallen angels, like these false teachers in Jude, people today are rejecting God's boundaries, denying the good differences that He has woven into us as men and women. They redefine marriage, deny the biblical sexual ethic, and claim that somehow people can be born in the wrong gender or the wrong body. These are pagan and Gnostic heresies that have been around for thousands of years. They're just repackaged for today. And what are the consequences of rejecting God's sovereignty? Well, for the fallen angels, Jude says, he is kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. So those who would not guard their own position of authority end up guarded in a place of darkness. I think there's some irony here. Remember in verse 1, Jude calls Christians the called, loved and kept. Right? And kept is one of his favorite words. It comes back at the end of the letter. It talks about how we are kept for true followers of Jesus, we are kept from stumbling, from falling. We we are kept for eternal salvation. But here Jude says those angels who refuse to keep their positions, Jesus will keep them in chains in darkness awaiting that final judgment. And that final judgment comes when Jesus returns. In Revelation 20.10, it describes this. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. And verses 11-15 through 15 goes on to describe how all those who die having rejected the lordship of Jesus Christ over their lives will also be cast into this eternal lake of fire. Jude's implication is that if these false teachers don't repent in faith, these heretics deceiving God's people, denying God's Son, will join those angels someday. Because if angels cannot escape the wrath of God for rejecting His sovereignty, do you think that people will? No. Now, as believers, as Christians, it's easy to sit back and say, well, I'm a Christian. I don't have to worry about that stuff. And true, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about hell. But we can still lose out on the peace and presence and power of God in our lives when we rebel from His authority. We have to keep ourselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ and reject our culture's call to self-rule, to autonomy. I saw just the other day on the Facebook page for the VA in Augusta, Promoting Pride Month, this quote, I'm not going to even read the whole quote, it's just part of it, it gets worse, but it says, Pride Month is a time to be unapologetically free from the judgment of so-called standards. Flaunting, rejecting, what standards are they talking about? The standards of God's Word. Our culture has this erroneous, erroneous notion that freedom means I'm free to do whatever I want to do. As the video said up there, that's not true. We're free to do what we're supposed to do. We're free to glorify God and serve others in His name. But freedom, with no submission to His authority, rejecting His standards, refusing the proper place, position, roles, and responsibilities He has given us, is not freedom at all. It's slavery to sin. Instead, of rejecting God's roles for us. Instead of rejecting God's clear delineation of of how we're to live our lives, He's given each of us boundaries. He's given each of us a sphere in which to live as men, as women, as Americans, as young, as old, with our different life experiences and our different abilities and gifts, how God has shaped us. He has placed us within a sphere to live. And rather than rejecting that, or taking it for granted, or looking at it with disdain. Our attitude should be that of David in Psalm 16 when he said, Lord, You are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I always let the Lord guide me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. You reveal the path of life to me. In Your presence is abundant joy and at Your right hand our eternal pleasures. David was pleased with the boundary lines of where God had placed him. That should be our attitude if we're going to live under submission to his authority. So we've seen that God takes very seriously the sin of refusing his Savior, rebelling against his sovereign authority, and he, as a holy and just God, judges both of those severely. The third, we see rejecting God's standards results in punishment. And the example here is Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this event in Genesis 19 is referred to over 20 times in the Bible. It's referred to in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and even by Jesus himself. It is a historical reality that happened in a real place, in a real time, to real people. You can go there today and see the the desolate ruin of where Sodom and Gomorrah was, where still to this day nothing will grow because of the sulfur, the salt, and the tar that has so desolated that land. It stands a perpetual warning to us of the seriousness of sin and the certainty of God's judgment. Second Peter 2, 6-8 also talks about God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, "...if He reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly." And he goes on to talk about how Lot was distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral and was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. So both Peter and Jude use these cities as examples to warn the ungodly of how severely God judges sin. Now, what kind of sin warranted such devastation? God didn't treat every city this way, although every city is guilty of sin. Well, Ezekiel 1649 condemns Sodom for being prideful. It says that though they had all the great wealth and comfort and security, they refused to help the poor and the needy. Extra-biblical Jewish writers mention Sodom's arrogance and injustice. The first century Jewish historian Josephus criticized them for hatred of foreigners. So they did a lot of bad stuff. But both Jude and Peter, along with other Old Testament passages, make it clear that the greatest and most depraved sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was sexual immorality. That's the word that Jude uses here in verse 7. He uses a Greek word, ek porneuo. The root word is porneia. It literally means to sell yourself for sex. It's literal prostitution. But that word came to mean and be all-encompassing for any illicit sex outside of marriage, which is why most translations just say sexual immorality. Now, Jude then points, he goes on to point to a specific kind of immorality. Now, the Christian Standard and the NIV both translate this Greek phrase simply as perversions, which could mean just about anything, right? But the literal translation is that they went after strange flesh, or they went after other flesh. That means that they sexually desired a different type of flesh than which they were supposed to desire. It's a reference to homosexuality. Paul uses a similar expression in Romans 1. He says, Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. Now, of course, when you read the Genesis 19 account, it's clear that the sin of homosexuality is prominent. When you look at what the men of Sodom wanted to do to the visitors to Lot's house, they didn't know they were angels, they just thought they were men from out of town. Josephus and his contemporary Philo both acknowledged this was a grievous sin that the cities committed and. Ezekiel goes on in verse 50 to also reference the detestable acts of the men of Sodom. It is obvious that homosexual behavior was the final straw that led God to eradicate these wicked cities. It wasn't their only sin. They were ungodly. They were unjust. They were wicked. They, they, they were intolerant of foreigners. They didn't listen to what God had to say. But I don't want you to listen to people who try to tell you and convince you that homosexuality was not the sin for which Sodom and Gomorrah was judged, or that it isn't condemned in the Bible, because that's not true. It's just not true. It clearly was that sin. And not just in this one instance. Theirs was a culture of lustful indulgence and immoral sexual practices. The Greek verb that Jude uses is intensive. It means to indulge in excessive sexual immorality. This was their way of life. And they were proud of it. It is vitally important for Christians to be clear on this topic because there are denominations, churches, pastors who will try to convince us, again, that the Bible does not condemn homosexual lifestyles. They are lying. They are being intellectually dishonest because the plain reading of Scripture is undeniable on this point. And anyone who tells you otherwise is guilty of doing exactly what Jude condemns. They're deceiving God's people of what God's Word clearly says. They're denying His sovereign authority and they're distorting His grace for an open license to sin. Jude says that the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is an illustration of the eternal punishment of hell for all who do such things. These fallen angels were destined for this ultimate judgment of fire, just as Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by judgment of fire. And just as that fiery judgment was complete and total on these wicked cities, so it will be on all those who go into eternity apart from Jesus Christ. I don't relish that. That doesn't make me feel good to say, but it's true. And to deny that truth and pretend it isn't so and to tell other people it isn't so is not love, but is hateful. Hell is real. It is a place of eternal punishment, suffering, sadness, and separation from God. Eleven of the twelve times the Greek word for hell, Gehenna, that, that Greek word is other words to talk about hell, but 11 of the 12 times Gehenna is mentioned, it's on the lips of Jesus. Which is why He endured the suffering and shame of the cross and bore our sins because He wanted to deliver us from the seriousness of sin and the certainty of judgment. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. Jude, here in this letter, listen, Jude clearly demonstrates for us the seriousness of sin and the certainty of judgment. But at the same time, the Bible is also clear about the patience of God to postpone judgment as long as possible. Just think about how long-suffering God was with the children of Israel. How many chances did God give Israel? How many times did He relent from just destroying them and starting all over with somebody else? Even in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, He was willing to spare the whole city if just ten righteous people could be found. God is a God of of holiness and justice, but He's also a God of mercy and grace. What does 2 Peter 3, 9 tell us? The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understanding delay, but is patient with you. In other words, they're asking the question, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? And Peter is saying it's because God is patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. God has gone to the greatest lengths possible to keep people out of hell. But God has also given us the freedom of choice. And if someone chooses unbelief, if they refuse God's Savior, if they refuse the way that He has provided for us to escape from hell, if they choose to rebel against His sovereignty and consistently reject His holy standards, then yes, hell is their ultimate destination. That doesn't have to be your destination. That doesn't have to be your future. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, a church, a first century city that was as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah. And Paul wrote to this church and he even mentions many of the same sins for which God destroyed those cities. He talks about sexual immorality, idolatry, homosexuality, stealing, greed, abuse, drunkenness. But then Paul brings them a word of good news. That because they place their faith in Jesus for salvation, he says in verse 11, Such were some of you. You used to be like these, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sin, God takes it seriously. His judgment is certain. It's coming someday. For those who are unbelievers, rebellious, and living in immorality, but God longs to forgive. He wants you to be washed in the blood of His Son and made new. He wants you to be born again, to cross over from death to life. Maybe today, you're being convicted of your own rebelliousness. You've been a law unto yourself. You've lived a lifestyle that's thumbed its nose at God's sovereign authority. You've rejected His standards for righteous living. Those are grievous sins. But the ultimate sin, the sin for which people go to hell, is the sin of refusing to believe in His Savior. Refusing to turn from their sins in faith and trust and receiving Jesus Christ. I hope that today, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will turn from your rebellion. You will place yourself in the care of His Savior and experience a renewal in your life you can't even begin to imagine. That's why the Bible calls it being born again, because you are made new. It's something you can't even conceive of till it happens to you, the difference that it makes. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you do not, in just a moment I invite you to come. And today you can say, I'm turning from my rebellious ways and I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus. It's that simple. But Christians, maybe for us, Maybe there are some standards of God that we've been rejecting in how we live. Doing things we ought not to do and not doing things that we're supposed to do. It goes both ways. Maybe there's some areas in your life where you've been rebelling against God's authority. Oh, he, he, he can have my heart on Sunday, he can have my heart at home, but not at work, not at school, not with these friends. Today, I encourage you to renew your commitment to Jesus Christ and bring yourself fully under His Lordship. Whatever God is speaking to your heart, let's trust and obey, and let's do what He says. Let's stand together and pray. Father, Lord, we know that these, are, these can be difficult words to hear. These aren't happy, fun things to talk about. But Lord, we, we live in a world of brokenness. We live in a world of people who are lost and confused and adrift. And whether they realize it or not, they are drifting down a mighty rushing river that's heading to destruction. But You have given us a lifeline through Jesus Christ. We can be saved from that. We can be delivered and given over to a new life. And Father, I pray if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that needs to do that, they would do that today. They would experience true freedom today. And Father, as Christians, Lord, forgive us for those times that we don't trust You to meet our daily needs. Forgive us for those times that we begin to rebel against Your authority and we slowly try to edge You off the throne of our heart in this area or that area. Forgive us when we fail to live up and live by Your standards. God, Your Word is clear. And I pray You would help us to put aside our vanity and our pride and our egos and to stop listening to the lies of the world and to trust the truth of Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray.